this is Sarah Hart Unger. Welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast about all things planning and planning adjacent. Today we have on the show Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism, and now most recently, coming out on April 27th, a book called Effortless, which is all about the things we can do in life to make life feel, well, easier, better, to kind of not be in a state of suffering, but instead make life just feel a little bit lighter and I hope maybe even more fun. And what does this have to do with planning? Well, to me, a lot. For me, how I live my life really has a lot to do with how I structure my planning and how I think about each day and how I'm going to use the precious minutes of the life that I have left. And thankfully, I think that this guest agrees with me as you'll hear in some of his tactics and ideas. So get ready for a deep dive into really some of the reasons for why one might choose to plan and how you might go about that to really continue to focus on what matters. So without further ado, here is Greg. We are here today with Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism and now Effortless, coming out right around the time this episode airs. Would you like to introduce yourself, Greg? Uh, It's great to be with you, Sarah. I'm Greg McEwen. Yes, author of Essentialism, you said. The new book is Effortless. I'm um, here in the midst of the pandemic still, but uh, with family and we live just north of Malibu. And so life is good. That is awesome. So you are no longer, you must be, you are British originally. Is that where you came from? That's right. Born in London, grew up in the, the north of England in Yorkshire, but been here 20 years now. Most of that in California. Makes sense, but it didn't sound like you had a Malibu accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's my one saving grace. As soon as I lose that, I'm out. My wife, Anna, says, you lose it, you're out, which she's never said, but I still think it's a risk. I still think it's a risk. I love it. Well, I am so excited to have you on. As you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about planning and intentionality, and I think your work fits very much right into that sphere. So you're a perfect person to come on and talk about what you've learned and discovered within those worlds. I really enjoyed essentialism. Part of me feels like I am the last person that should be saying that because I'm a mother of three physician with a leadership position who likes to do podcasts and blog on the side. So (laughs) I don't know. Am I allowed? (laughs) Can I still, am I still allowed to really enjoy your ideas? (laughs) Well, of course you are. I mean, essentialism is about what is essential to the individual. It's about what really matters. We combine all sorts of responsibilities in a way to craft a life that really matters. You know, I can imagine for you that you see the different roles you're playing as really being important. I can see to your children, you can, you, they are essential and vital. Uh, also, your patients, you want to be able to, to help them with all sorts of challenges that they're faced with. And now also to this audience that you take it seriously. So, You've taken on a lot, yes, but I, I, I believe that if you're being intentional about it and thoughtful, we can all make a great contribution and without burning out if we think about it just the right way. Okay, that's great. That makes me feel better. <laughs> so, and actually, I think a big part of that not burning out with a lot of our listeners having multiple plates that they're juggling in the air, if they're parents and they're working, you know, some of that is planning, which is why this podcast and kind of I'm so passionate about it. But I want to hear a little bit, well, first of all, sorry, it's a little bit of a pivot, but I would like to know, how did essentialism, like, where did effortless come from after essentialism? How do you bridge those two? Because they are kind of different sets of ideas. Was it one and then the other? Are they connected? Yes. 
if you had to summarize essentialism in one word, it would be prioritization. And if you had to summarize Effortless, the new book, in one word, it's simplification. And I think you can read these books separately. They exist independently. It was important when I was writing it that if someone just read Effortless, they could find something that was interesting, challenging, and useful. But I think actually they work better together. They're a bit like cousins. Or to use a, a British example, it's like you can think about them like the Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Right? They, you, you can create music separately. They work separately. But it was when they were working together that they created the magic in the Beatles. And I think it's the relationship between these two books that helps to turn it into sort of a multiplication of effort. And so that's how I think about each of the books and how they work together. Okay. So you're going to distill effortless. That's very interesting down to simplification, because I think there was a lot of simplification. Well, I guess prioritization makes sense for essentialism, but I thought there was some simplification in there. For sure there too. is. Yeah. So taking that a little bit farther, how would you describe, I don't know, a person who's maybe prioritizing, but not simplifying? What are they missing there? Well, I, I mean, it happened... It happened to me. I mean, partially because of essentialism, I started to feel this a sense that you know you can be really selective. I was being more selective than I'd ever been. I wasn't writing another book. I wasn't building a workshop business as would typically be expected. I had put on you know taken a hiatus from a class I designed at Stanford. I mean, I was being more selective than I'd ever been, and yet I still felt it was really more. It was being required of me than I knew how to give. And the things I was doing, by the way, wasn't a motivation problem. Everything I was doing, I wanted to be doing. You know, being the father of essentialism came with all sorts of opportunities to speak at events and to work with people who are hungry to apply not just general ideas, but essentialist ideas. They want to become essentialists. Well, I want to be doing that. I, by this point, father of four children. And so, of course, I want to be there for them, to coach them, to know them, to be friends with them, to love them, to understand their unique contribution. I would have them travel with me when I, uh, when I traveled and uh, about 80% of the time, and I wanted to be doing that too. And I started to find myself up against the limits of an assumption I'd held as being true. And that, you know, you can explain this assumption by the appeal to the big rocks theory, right? The big rocks theory is if you have a container and you put in and you're trying to fill this container and you have various you've got sand and if you put the sand in first and then you've got small rocks they go on top and then if you've got big rocks you put them on top of that and if you do it in that order it doesn't fit but if you do it in the right way uh you know the way it's supposed to work you put the big rocks in first then the small rocks then the sand on top of that you know then you're good to go that's how it's supposed to work but I found myself in a position where I felt like I was doing that, pushing the big rocks in first. And I'm like, yeah, but it still doesn't fit. Like, here's the question. What do you do if you have too many big rocks? They are all essential, but they still don't fit. And right in the midst of that, already feeling that tension, already feeling the cracks in the theory, I found, you know, then I get a call from my, uh, from my son who is uh, on, his, on my, my wife's phone videoing me and panicked. And it, it, what was happening was that one of my daughters, Eve, was having a massive tonic-clonic seizure while I was traveling. This was a part of a, a discombobulating health crisis. 
and a neurological condition that was undiagnosed and was massively affecting every part of her life. And so like suddenly you're going, okay, now what? All the responsibilities don't disappear. It's a bit like the pandemic. Suddenly you've got this crisis. It doesn't mean suddenly you don't have responsibilities. And how do you go forward? And so this was all context for saying, well, knowing what's essential, eliminating what's not is actually necessary, but insufficient. You also have to find out how do we go about these things? Are we doing not just the right things? Are we doing them in the right way? And as it turns out, what sort of pushed me over the edge, what led me to sort of being in burnout was trying to do things like a swimmer who isn't breathing properly, a weightlifter who's lifting with their back. It's like a, someone who's a baker who's trying to knead with everything by hand instead of having a machine to do it. Like you can do the, the right things, but if you do them in the wrong way, basically they end up kind of being the wrong thing because you still end up burning out and not getting the results that you want. So that was a big part of why I then went on this journey to find a way that would be more sane for me, more sustainable for my family, and also now writing the book, sharing those ideas and practices with other people. Oh, that is fascinating. And I, it's so interesting on a much, much smaller scale. I've experienced things like that, of course, with COVID. Right. And it's almost like you go from, you know, proactive and like you feel like, okay, I'm fitting in all these things and I'm enjoying it to one thing gets added and all of a sudden everything else becomes reactive and then nothing is fun anymore and everything <laughs> is a slog and the quality yes. goes down. And yes. then, so I'm so excited to read Effortless. We were joking as we started this that I haven't read it yet, but I have pre-ordered it at the start of this episode. <laughs> so maybe I'll have to add a little afterward when it airs because I'm sure I'm going to love it. So tell me and our listeners you know, what did you find? What is the, what was the way out of that? If you had to distill it down to a, you know, a shortened podcast version? Well, let me just give the context here. One clear moment. The reason I wrote the book, to be clear, is because life is so hard. And the complication is we make it harder than we need to, in addition to it already being hard. And if we do that, you burn out with getting the results that you want. My position is in this new book, we can make a different choice that we can find an easier path. And if we do that, that we can get the results we want without burning out. That's the context. How do we do that? You got to think about life in three concentric circles. The first is state. The second is action. The third is results. And many of us, much of the time, are in a state of what I would call like suffering. We feel full of grudges. We feel burdened. We can feel exhausted. What does that do to the action that we take? It makes it more complex. We're trying to prove to the world that we're worthy. We're trying to, you know, like one of the people that I, I interviewed for the book, she's a manager in a, a university. And she says, you know, she, if she even ate lunch, she felt guilty. Not taking time off for lunch, even if she eats it, she feels guilty. She's up till 4 a.m. in the morning, photoshopping for, for a young woman's event the next day at church. No one's asking her to do that. That's what she just feels obliged to do. If she's not exhausted, she feels like she's not doing enough. So this affects all of the state she's in all the time, the action that she takes and the results that she gets. That's what I would call like the, the, the circles of suffering. <laughs> On the other side, you've got an alternative path where you get into more often the effortless state, which leads to effortless action. And then effortless results where they start to flow to you instead of just when you're forcing them and pushing them. Now, what can you do to start doing these things, right? How can you begin? 
one simple thing I think you can start with is, is just uh, having a done-for-the-day list uh, where you say, okay, instead of the endless to-do, you take a minute to like, think through what is it that, would, that will actually allow me to be done with the work portion of my day and being clear about that. And so then that's like step one. Step two, they don't have to be in this order. Another concrete thing that we can do is, is start to build in rituals of relaxation, that we make relaxing a responsibility. We need to learn how to relax. Many of us, myself included, just don't really, it's more past tense for me now, but just don't know how to relax. We don't know what that looks like. It's quite uncomfortable, actually, when you you, you do the work and then you're like, okay, be relaxed now. And that's uncomfortable enough that we're like, okay, well, I'll just go do sneaky work. You know, yes, I will take a bath, but I will really just be on my phone. You're never really relaxing. So we need to learn how to do that. And one concrete way to do that is just make a list of the things that you that do relax you. You don't have to justify it to anyone. It's just a list of things. Uh, you know, start with 10 items. You might have to pay a little attention to yourself, get some self-awareness of the things, write them down, have the other people in your life do the same, share them with each other so that you can even help each other to build these into rituals. So you make like what I would call like a the, the joy, like, like Lego building blocks of joy or something where you can just go, okay, if I have a half day that I'm not required to work, I have a half day off, these are the things I can now start building into that time. If you're trying to plan a birthday party, I do it with my wife now with Anna. If it's her birthday, I'm like, okay, I'm looking at the list. What are the things that are relaxing and rejuvenating for her uniquely so you can create signature approach? So that, that might be a, a second thing. So I'll, I'll pause for a second because I don't want to just monologue here. But these are some of the what I found, the model, the effortless state, action, and results. And here are a couple of things you can start right away to do. We're going to take a very quick ad break and be right back. I'm so excited to welcome the Literacy Teacher's Life as our newest Best Laid Plan sponsor. Teaching reading and writing to children is more than following a lockstep progression or list of predetermined activities and strategies. Instead, teaching children to read and write is complex and requires teachers to be systematic in their thinking so that children learn to problem solve, decode, and make meaning. If you are a new or graduating educator trying to navigate the literacy classroom, a veteran teacher looking for new ideas, or a parent trying to support your child with reading and writing, look no further than the Literacy Teacher's Life. The Literacy Teacher's Life is a website and blog that supports upcoming and current educators. It provides weekly tips and tricks for creative strategies and powerful practices for the students, as well as suggestions for navigating the job market and for making life's puzzle pieces fit together. Created by Elizabeth Morphis, a professor of childhood education and literacy and the coordinator of the Literacy Education Graduate Program at the State University of New York at Old Westbury, located outside of New York City, Elizabeth earned her doctorate in literacy education from Teachers College, Columbia University. So if you are looking for evidence-based literacy practices to support students with skills such as fluency, reading comprehension, or student-directed writing, subscribe to the Literacy Teacher's Life today. Visit The Literacy Teacher's Life at www.theliteracyteacherslife.com. Okay, we are back. I am going to ask a question, which I'm sure you're going to get from multiple places, and that is, okay, Greg, like, that's great. You're already an established author. You've gotten to like a really good place. And so you're in a place where you can kind of like put your feet up and allow yourself to step back. But what if I am coming from a disadvantaged background and I'm still a student and I just 
you know, haven't made much of like money yet and I just don't have resources available to me. How can I still take advantage of this? How can I make get more effortlessness in my life if if I'm I'm not speaking about myself, but this theoretical person, if I'm the one that truly needs it? Yeah, well, that's who I wrote it for. And so it's not it's not like that's an add-on group. I'm I'm writing it to people whose life is hard, whose life is suffering. And I mean, let me just I'll share just two examples. One is practical and then one I think is 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 the deeper reason for even doing this book. But the, you know, just to complete the cycle of this story, I started with um uh, before uh, of this this manager who's in this university and what her life is like. What I introduced to her was a, was a simple question. It sounds too simple when you first hear it, but I just said, look, I don't want you to start trying to transform your life and be overwhelmed by all of that. I just want you to do one thing. I want you to ask a new question. It was like, questions are answers. If you ask the right question, you start to get new answers in your life. I said, the next time someone asks you to do something, just pause and ask, how can this be effortless? What might an easy solution be, or at least an easier solution look like? The next call she gets is from a professor at the university. He says, like, I want you to, to record my semester worth of my class. Uh, and she, she, one of her responsibilities, she owns the videography department for the university. And so she's just like jumping into it in her mind. She goes, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to just kill it for, the, for, for him. We're going to give you intros and outros, graphics, music, edit the whole thing, multiple angles. And she's just imagining this full four months semester's worth of, of work for this whole team. Then she remembers the question, well, how could this be effortless? As she's talking to him now, she finds that it's for one student who just needs, you know, like they're going to miss a few of the classes because they have an athletic commitment. And they come up with a solution that another student will just record it on the iPhone whenever they're going to miss and send it to them. The professor is delighted with that solution and they get off the phone within 10 minutes and she just steps back like, what just happened? Like, how did I just save four months worth of work for an entire team for 10-minute conversation? And so that is the power of the question. And I think that like whatever the circumstances someone's in, and especially if it's difficult, especially if they're just starting out, to ask the question, how could this be effortless? What might be an effortless way to do it? Inverting the question is a powerful way to get a new answer and to discover all sorts of paths that aren't obvious when you're not asking that question. So that, that to me is one really important place to begin. And it ties in with your other ideas because part of that question asking is about figuring out what's essential. Like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? What is the point here? Yes. And then everything is hopefully going to then flow in a less effortful, more natural direction. I like that. And it definitely connects there. I think that's right. I mean, if somebody wants to immediately just do something, they can just say, what's one thing that's essential? Uh, that they wish was eff- they wish was more effortless, right? You just just that alone. You you do a lot with that one question. You focus your mind on something that clearly matters, and you start asking your mind to search with all of its experience for what might be an easier way to achieve that thing. I just did it the other day. This is a trivial example in some ways, but life is all built up with these small things that in themselves don't seem massive. But I was. Um, Looking around my office, I saw that there was a printer that uh, had been sitting there for two weeks. As soon as I see it, this little cycle in my head, well, do you sell it? Do you give it away? Do you throw it away? Well, if you throw it away, you're trying to recycle center, digital reset. I don't know where that is. Uh, 
that was enough in like five seconds of thinking, I'm like, oh, I'll come back to that later. And instead, I'm like, okay, well, what would effortless? What would it be like if it was effortless? And, and as, as soon as I asked that question, I look up and there were having to be a couple of workers just along the way outside. And I was like, I wonder if they want it. Went out, asked them, yes, they wanted it, gave it to them. Within two minutes of asking the question, the problem was completely solved. And that's the power of the question. It's so empowering. I want it for people who feel desperate, who feel like their life is in challenge, it is suffering in some way. And, and so on the one end, I think it works for each practical situation you're in in life. On the other side of the spectrum, this book was born in suffering. You know, it was born, as I mentioned from, you know, with, with my daughter is she suddenly has these massive neurological problems. And I just discovered in the midst of that, what really could have been, and sometimes was agonizing experience, two paths. One path is the heavier, harder path, and the other is the easier path. And actually, you'd think, well, it's obvious, take the easier path. But actually, it wasn't. It was easier to imagine taking this heavier path where you try just to live for nothing else but this, and, and it consumes body and soul. You could fall into all sorts of patterns of, uh, why did this happen to us? Why Eve? Why all this? There's a very heavy path that would have exhausted us, burned us out. But it was so important that we needed to find an easier path because we have no idea how long this thing is going to go on for. We have no idea if it's, if it's solved at some point, whether that it will all return, which in fact it did. And if you burn out because in the name of importance, then you're in a very precarious position for the next important vital thing that comes along. So finding a sustainable, lighter way to do life was necessary for me, for our family, and really was the impetus for, for writing this. No, that makes sense. And your timing was impeccable because uh, everyone needs this now, I think, more than ever, really, since 2020. Yeah, it's a little unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, it, in some ways, what you're saying is really right. Like the, the, the number of people that are teetering right on the edge of burnout or way past it is, I think, higher now than maybe at any other point in, in our lifetimes. And I think it's higher even than the statistics show, and the statistics are high. But I think if you have conversations with people, it's quite emotional, really. The people are, I mean, isolation will burn you out. Despondency will burn you out. I mean, that's on one side of the spectrum where you would think, well, well these people, why would they be burned out? They, they've, they've reacted with a kind of a certain side of response to life. But, and then, of course, on the other side, if you're hyperactive and you're doing so much all the time uh, so, because you're so responsible, that's also obviously going to burn you out. So finding, even discovering that there is a sort of virtuous, but easier path is helpful. A lot of us have like this um, idea that if it's not hard, it, it couldn't be valuable. We've been taught like the Puritan ethic that we're not just that hard work is good, which I think it is, but also that ease is to be distrusted. And so it leads, I think, a lot of otherwise, you know, otherwise successful, talented people to, to behave in ways that are counterproductive. And just to discover, oh, what, what, if these, what if the essential stuff could be designed to be the easiest things in your life, or at least a bit easier, or at least not everything having to be hard all the time? No, I think that makes so much sense. I want to ask about, because this is a planning-related podcast, yeah. 
I'm curious about your own ways of planning and organizing and any rituals. Well, you've mentioned a couple already, the done list and the kind of writing down. And I love this. And a lot of people I think would, would love to keep this in physical format in their planning systems or, you know, in Apple notes or wherever, you know, that yeah. list of relaxation, but what is your way of, of deciding, you know, each day and each week, what you are going to work on? And has that been, has that changed as these ideas grew? Yeah. I mean, one of the most important planning questions for me is just what does done look like? And so whether that's the done for the day thing that we already talked about, or whether it's just a, a major project, what does done look like? When, the, when I'm writing the book, what does done look like? If you don't know what done looks like, you can't be done. And to be successful at anything, you have to be done. Like you've got to get to that point. So I think that's, that's part of my planning process is really being clear with what done looks like and de- defining it, writing it down. And that's true for my own goals, but also true if I'm working on projects for other people. How will we know when we're done is a question that, you know, that we can really ask. I, I think another part of my planning process that I think may be relevant is I hardwire a lot of thankfulness into my planning process. And I don't do that because I don't do it because I feel like I'm, oh, it's an enlightened thing to do. I do it because it's good for my mental health. It's such a good way to, for me to review the day. I have to admit though, it doesn't take me one, like 10 seconds, one minute. I've heard people say stuff like that. Hey, well, just for one minute of your day, it doesn't take me that. It takes me a while. If I'm caught for time, if if my ritual's off, then I can do, okay, I'm going to do one line, two lines, five lines, just to, just to do it. But that's not what I find satisfying. Like I like to take a while and like really think about the day and write up these things. And I'm amazed actually how often I will have forgotten by the end of the day, something great or special that happened at the beginning of it. That I just, when I first sit down there, I'm like, that was today. I can't believe it. And I couldn't remember it at first. I'll look at my calendar in order to be reminded. It's so cathartic, particularly valuable in my planning process is to do the same thing I just described, but every week. The research behind this shows that you get a bigger return on your investment for weekly gratitude than for daily. And I also do that about every six months. I'll do it reviewing the whole six months. I just did that now. That again was even more, I would say that was an even higher return on investment. And the reason all that matters is that the state you're in is the most important thing in life. What state you're in affects everything else. And so when you get in the right state, I mean, I'll say it this way, like if you focus on what you lack, then you'll lose what you have. If you focus on what you have, then you'll gain what you lack. And so what you focus on grows. So I see thankfulness in this way, gratitude as strategy, incredibly powerful growth strategy, not, hey, that's a nice to do thing, not some new agey thing, not some soft principle, but like, this is the best remedy for the hardest things you'll deal with in life and for dealing with the great successes of your life. Because as Rudyard Kipling wrote in the poem, if you've got to treat those two imposters just the same, great things and the bad things. You've got, they're both imposters because they'll get you out of the ideal state. They'll make you either depressed and frustrated or they make you arrogant. And all of this gets you out of the, the state that you actually need to live life in. And that's more like you know this effortless state that, that we've been talking about. Oh my gosh, there are so many facets. I love that. You know, I think that's so interesting because we do so much talking about forward planning on the show and 
calendar management and setting your priorities and setting your goals. And a lot of people don't put as much effort into looking back, but there's so much value there. And I think that's why actually, you know, things like gratitude journaling and, you know, even products that help you to structure those ideas have become more popular. There's a real reason for that. It actually makes your life better. Yes. And you saying it in that way distinguishes something for me that I have learned, but probably never articulated, which is that gratitude isn't looking back. It is, but that's not, that doesn't quite capture it. Yes, you're looking at what you're grateful for. So that is a kind of backwards motion. But what you're doing is you're changing your state right now. So that's a very present thing. And also, and this is the part I haven't articulated well before, is that in everything you're grateful for, there are seeds of the future. They're informing. That's why I think about it when you said planning, is because that's where I know what to do next. It's in what you're grateful for. It's because that's what's going right. That's where momentum exists. That's where it's easiest to build on. And so gratitude isn't just looking back. It's past, present, and future. It indicates future. It's helpful to be able to even discover, like for setting goals, I'll set goals out of what I'm grateful for. And it's very intuitive. As I'm making my list of gratitude, I'll be writing down, I just did it six months planning process review, like kind of a personal quarterly offsite, even though I found every six months works especially well because I have a, a big church conference I go to every six months. So I use that weekend to do this planning process. And as I'm writing what I'm grateful for, I will often be writing my goals in response to them. Like, what would the next level of done look like in this? What would the next goal be? And, and it, it just keeps, uh, it, it is informing of your goals. It's almost semi-writing your next set of essential goals. That's how it is for me. I love that. Wow, that is deeper into the planning and reflection process than I think we've ever gone on the show before. So thank you. Thank you. That was fabulous. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been enlightening. I cannot wait to read in more detail. I will do an update. So we'll, you know, we'll discuss once again, I will discuss. But in the meantime, tell our listeners where they can find Effortless and where they can find you. I think that you could find sort of all those combinations. If you go to essentialism.com right now, people can, if they, if they order the book, they also get access to a 21-day essentialism challenge, which is a masterclass series. It's a series of bite-sized video pieces that they can help them to just put essentialism into practice in their life, but also in an easier way. So I think that that's kind of the the thing you can they can sign up the newsletter. It's a one minute per week, one minute Wednesday that just gives you just a question and a little inspiration, and that's linked to the podcast that I started a few months ago called What's Essential. And uh, if people subscribe to What's Essential, they'll they just participate in these conversations on an ongoing basis. I've thoroughly enjoyed having them, and also of course thoroughly enjoyed being with you today, Sarah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Wow. Well, that was just absolutely fascinating hearing his take on things. And I had not really thought about the practice of gratitude journaling being a past, present, and future focused activity, but he's right. It really is. And I think maybe, you know, we're seeing more and more people get into memory planning and they're creating these books. And they're looking into the past and they're enjoying the process of doing it. And they're also creating something for their future self to savor, as well as influencing what they might be doing with their lives in the future. So it really is, I think, a much more deeper activity than 
those outside of the planning community might give it credit for. So wow, mind blown about that. I thought this was really interesting. And hopefully by the time this airs, I've already read the book. I'd be happy to share my thoughts about it in my show notes and on my blog. I'm sure it's going to have some fantastic ideas. And again, you can find that wherever books are sold starting on April the 27th. Have a wonderful week. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.